For decades, the name William Richardson meant something special to kids growing up in Northeast Denver. He made us understand that anything was possible in this life, but it had to be earned. It's like, man, if he made it, I can make it. He was a provider of hope. This legacy, providing hope and giving opportunity, was the second part of William Richardson's extraordinary life. Even his own kids didn't fully know about what came before until now. We thought we knew everything, but we didn't. You're listening to Colorado In-Depth, a podcast of special reporting from CPR News. I'm Rachel Estabrook. On the eve of baseball season, this is the story of a Colorado family who uncovers their dad's contributions to sports history, Black history, and American history. Chandra Thomas Whitfield has spent months diving into this never-before-told story. Chandra, batter up. They say you're a pretty fair hitter. So they says. <laughs> well, hit this. One night in the 70s, Marcus Richardson had sat down to watch TV with his brothers and sisters and their dad. It was something they did pretty often as a family. I think we had a family room in the back. Yeah, it used to be a porch built into a family room, and we were all gathered around the TV in that room. But this night at their house in Denver turned out to be special. Marcus and his sister Terry, who you heard in the background, remember exactly what was on the TV. This movie called The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars in Motor King. It was about an all-black baseball team playing and traveling across America at a time when baseball was not racially integrated. Marcus's dad had a reason he wanted to watch it. We start watching the movie, and he starts explaining to us, hey, yeah, this really happened. Marcus was in junior high at the time. Immediately, his ears perked up. And he was telling us that that was the time when I used to play. I used to play in a league like that. He kind of confirmed some of the things that were in that movie that were true riding on the bus and sleeping in the bus because they couldn't sleep in the hotels because blacks weren't allowed in hotels at that time. He talked about how they would go through certain towns and they would always ride the bus to all these different baseball games and how some of the baseball games were really packed. And he talked about how they dressed for the game. Everybody came dressed up for the game. Marcus and his siblings had never heard their dad talk like this before. Then he started mentioning some of the guys' names and things like that that he used to play with. And one of the famous players was Charlie Pride, was it? Charlie Pride. Yes, the Charlie Pride, the first black superstar in country music. He'd played baseball before that. Once the story started, William Richardson wouldn't stop sharing his colorful tales, memories of high-stakes baseball games and big pitches, bus trips, and landing contracts. And he also mentioned some of the things that was in that movie, the part in the movie where the pitcher cleared the outfield, 
<laughs> cleared the outfield. It was two outs. And uh, he struck the guy out. He was so confident that he was going to strike him out. He cleared the outfield. Bingo's calling in the outfield. I don't believe it. A full count. And bases loaded. And he's calling in his team. Bingo Long is wagering the future of his team on this one. This one single solitary pitch. He said that that really happened. I didn't know that he played in the Negro League until that movie came out. It was surprising. We were like, he was in the Negro Leagues? And we didn't know about that? We thought we knew everything, but we didn't. Wow, my dad was a professional baseball player. It sparked questions like, what was it like back then? And is that the reason why you moved to Denver, Colorado? Today, we remember William Richardson, a top-notch athlete whose story hasn't been told until now. He made his mark on Black history, American history, sports history. We'll also hear from people trying to make sure the story of the Negro Baseball Leagues isn't lost forever. This is Colorado In-Depth, a podcast of special reporting from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Beyond baseball, there's another reason William Richardson lived an extraordinary life. After his baseball career, he helped shape the lives of hundreds of young people growing up in Metro Denver. I first learned of William Baby Richardson from a family friend. His granddaughter, Ashley, told me about him in July of 2022, just hours after he died at the age of 87. Ashley and her family, his children and grandchildren, were in the thick of it, trying to process their immense loss, when she mentioned to me that her grandfather had played in the historic Negro Baseball League. And that was before he would take on a second career, mentoring and coaching generations of young people here in Colorado— and perhaps not in the way you're expecting. I'm a lover of all things Black history, so after our chat, I immediately jumped on the Internet to see what I could find out about him. I wanted to learn more about the strapping young baseball player, a pitcher captured in mid-row in his crisp uniform in a black-and-white photo that Ashley's mom posted to Facebook that same day. I'm a pretty decent researcher, and I could not find anything more about him. Even after his funeral a few weeks later, I could not locate so much as an obituary online. What a travesty, I thought. This man had clearly lived a remarkable life, but would his stories and, more importantly, his story die with him? That internet search did yield some information. For one, I don't think there are any audio recordings of actual Negro League games. Very, very unfortunate. Which is why earlier you heard the Bingo Long movie, starring Richard Pryor, Billy D. Williams, and James Earl Jones. Let's go get it! But I have seen photographs, articles, and other tributes, some of them from people you will hear from today, some of the top baseball scholars in the country. 
The Negro Leagues ran primarily between 1920 and the late 1940s, but many teams continued well into the 1950s and early 60s, all during a time of segregation in America that extended into every aspect of American life. Yes, including in amateur and professional sports. Major League Baseball had a unofficial gentleman's agreement, which says that no black players will be allowed in white Major League Baseball. During the term of Commissioner Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, he was a commissioner of baseball and he banned black people from playing in the white majors. He tried to ban all black teams from playing all white teams. Larry Lester co-founded the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. He has written, co-authored, and edited nine books about Negro League Baseball. The Negro League Baseball was founded in 1920, and it gave opportunity to Black athletes who did not have the opportunity to play in the white major leagues. And so it filled that void. There's no Black ballplayers started playing ball all the way back to the Civil War. And now with the 1920s, we have the Harlem Renaissance. It's a new age, new dynamics among Black people. We're coming out of World War One, and Black people are saying if they won't accept us in mainstream, let's start our own businesses, create our own institutions, hair care products, life insurance, restaurants, other businesses. And one business was baseball. Let's start a baseball league, the Negro National League, which was founded by Ruth Foster in 1920. So they created opportunity where opportunity did not exist in the white mainstream. And this was well before and even after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the sport in April of 1947. The talented Negro League athletes were some of the best to ever play the game. And Bill Richardson was among them. He played all or part of four seasons in the Negro League. Dr. Leighton Ravel founded the Negro Southern League Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, and interviewed Bill Richardson. He kind of epitomized what Negro League baseball was all about. You know, in the Negro League, you didn't make a lot of money. Nobody ever made, except Satchel Page, made a lot of money playing Negro League baseball. You made just enough to get by. He didn't play for endorsement contracts with a shoe company or to be a national celebrity or anything else. You played for one reason. You loved baseball. And it was always the highest level. If you were a person of color, that's where you could play ball. What the Negro League did helped form the foundation for Major League Baseball today. When I think about Mr. Richardson and his career, he played with some great ball players like Otha Bailey, a great catcher, and Henry Kimbrough, outstanding outfielder, and Carl Long, a home run hitter. Oh, he also played with Willie Wells, a shortstop who was in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and he played with some of the great ones. Larry Lester also told me that the Negro Leagues were extensively and almost exclusively covered and documented in Black newspapers. Over the years, Richardson's children would learn more about their dad's career, his place in sports history, 
and they had the foresight to preserve some of it. Go ahead, Dad. Just testing one, two, three. Testing one, two. In 2009, Marcus and his brother Stanley and Richardson's granddaughter Ashley grabbed an old school camcorder. Is it William? Is it rolling? He on the roll. What I'm doing right now is I'm testing it to make sure we don't go two hours and don't have no film on here. We don't have no tape. They set the camera on a tripod, sat Richardson down at his dining room table, and hit record. Well, my name is William E. Richardson, and I was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1934. Um, uh, it was sort of uh, in between, right outside of Birmingham in a little town called Vinesville. And Vinesville was in between Birmingham and right next door to uh, Fairfield, Alabama. You were called Bebe. Can you tell us how you got that, acquired that nickname? Well, that name I got from, uh, I, I think, some of my aunts. Uh, you know, we used to go on these picnics and all of this when I was three and four years old, and I could swim. You mentioned something about Rocky Beach. Yeah, we used to go to Rocky Beach on these uh, trucks uh, to go swimming and stuff like that. And I was always on the big girls' backs and all of that. And then they couldn't understand how a little fella like me, three years old, could be out there swimming. They used to call me, there go the baby. You know, so. So that's how you got the baby. Yeah. William Baby Richards. Right. Richardson fell in love with sports as a kid in Alabama. He especially enjoyed baseball and football. As a teenager, he made a name for himself playing in the local amateur baseball leagues. In Alabama, Richardson wasn't the only baseball standout. He got close with a neighbor, a guy named Willie Mays. Willie Mays is a good example of five greatest ball players of all times. Mm. Everybody thinks about him with the San Francisco Giants, the New York Giants. He made the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, the reality was he started playing baseball in Fairfield, Alabama, with the Fairfield Stars. Well, um, Willie grew up about two blocks uh, from where my, I lived. Early on, I was really impressed with him as an athlete, and we became you know, real good friend. Mm -hmm. In fact, we pal around together, and I've always admired his athletic ability, and I, I thought then, even as youngsters growing up, that he was the greatest athlete that I'd ever seen. Well, they played with and against each other in high school. They played against each other when Bebe was at Parker and Willie Mays was still at Fairfield. And Richardson was a pretty good athlete, too. The thing that a lot of people don't realize about Mr. Richardson is he was more than just a baseball player. He got an opportunity to leave home to head to the big city of Atlanta, Georgia, on a football scholarship. Yes, football. To play quarterback at historically black Clark College, now known as Clark Atlanta University, which, by the way, also happens to be my alma mater. He took the offer, but also got his big break in baseball. He signed with the Negro Baseball League team known as the Birmingham Black Barons. And during the summers when he was out of school in 54 and 55, 
He played with the Birmingham Black Barons. What color were you guys' uniforms when you played with the Birmingham Black Barons? I remember that they were wool, a wool material, mm-hmm. and sort of white and had some stripes down the front and this kind of thing. And of course, you know, we wore the socks up. Right. Like the old school ball players wore during that particular time. Just like his son Marcus had noticed in the Bingo Long movie, Bebe remembered well the racial dynamics that were perpetually in play, even at Negro League games. Racial relations were very interesting during that particular time because of the fact that um, in each city there was a a black team and a white team. Mm -hmm. And the thing that was very noticeable to me, even at a very young age, even before my career began, is that I noticed that all the white at the white games, all the black people sit way out in the bleachers. And during our games that we had whites sit on the first baseline and the third baseline all the time. Mm. Larry Lester described some of the racism the players faced on and off the baseball field. Well, the climate was contentious, somewhat overwhelming when they're not accepted on the road uh, to stay in hotels or eat in some restaurant, they had to be creative. And so they would uh, carry lunches on the bus with them. Mm. Uh, Some players would carry a fishing pole in case they came by a stream. They would catch some fish, skin it, fry it, eat it. And then, of course, they had the green book, which would tell them what hotels they could stay at. And they would use whatever means necessary to get from town to town to play either a minor league team or major league team. But they were determined to play the game they loved. I think the most memorable game that I had was uh, July 4th, 1953 in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, when uh, I came in and relieved in about the seventh or eighth inning and got the victory. And it was an extremely hot day that day, like 102. Mm. And so we were just chilling out, waiting for the second game to start in the doubleheader. And Hoss Walker came up to me and said, you starting that next game. And man, I was completely drained. <laughs> the Memphis Red Sox, that was a team that we were at our opposition that particular day. And the manager told them not to swing at any pitchers. Just let him wear himself out pitching. And by the third inning, man, I was done. <laughs> it's like I had lost about 15 or 20 pounds. <laughs> Richardson's pitching eventually caught the attention of another team, one much further from home, in Michigan. And then in 1957, he played with the Detroit Stars. So he played all or parts of four seasons in the Negro Leagues with the Black Barons, the Detroit Stars. He and his buddy Willie Mays had remained close for most of their youth, but a personal matter would eventually drive a wedge between them as young adults. 
a conflict over a special young lady. Well, you know, Willie and I, we had a a really sort of strong relationship. You know, I valued his friendship, and uh, I used to love just being around him a lot until one day I... My eyes dawned upon his cousin who lived with Willie, a young lady by the name of Loretta T, that I was quite interested in. And Willie sort of didn't like that too much by me getting too close to the family. Richardson was so smitten by the lovely Loretta Thomas that even objections from his longtime friend, Willie Mays, her cousin, would not stop Bebe and Loretta from being together. They married in January 1957, Richardson graduated with his bachelor's degree the same year, and they immediately started their family. His friendship with Mays would never recover. With his new bride by his side and a baby on the way, he launched his career off the baseball diamond. He got a job working with young people at the Butler Street YMCA in Atlanta, one of the few recreational centers at the time that served the Black community there. Richardson was playing baseball in the summer and spending the rest of the year working with young people at the Y in Georgia. That work at the Y eventually led to another offer that brought him to Denver. In 1962, Richardson got offered a job leading physical education at the Glen Arm YMCA in Denver. Just like the rec center where he worked in Atlanta, the Glen Arm Y was one of the only rec centers here in Colorado that served the Black community. Negro League historian Dr. Leighton Ravel says Richardson brought what he learned in baseball to his work with kids. He was a phenomenal role model for the kids that he coached and taught, and he was what an athlete should be, whether they're playing in the major leagues today for the New York Yankees or they were playing for Lynch Jewelers in Denver, Colorado. While he worked at the Glen Arm Y in Denver, William Richardson kept playing baseball, but by that point, it was mostly recreational. Denver never had a team in the Negro American League or the Negro National League, but there were local teams that were very good ball players back in those days. Dr. Leighton Ravel interviewed Richardson once. He also has a signed baseball from Richardson in his museum. In our conversation, he dropped a fascinating and unexpected revelation— He said Richardson told him that after he'd moved to Denver, he was approached about what arguably sounded like the offer of a lifetime. He played local baseball there in the Denver area and was offered a contract by the Pittsburgh Pirates to play in organized baseball. You heard that right. Dr. Ravel told me that Richardson said he'd in fact received an offer to try out for a spot on the Pittsburgh Pirates, a white team in Major League Baseball. Remember, this was after Jackie Robinson had integrated the MLB. Dr. Ravel says Richardson turned it down. I can remember talking to him about it, and it was it really was very meaningful to me because, you know, chance to get a contract. Um, is, you know, every young baseball player's dream because you've got to get signed in order to play in the minor leagues, hopefully make it to the major leagues. And what uh, William was concerned with is he had what he considered his dream job working with the YMCA. And I asked him, why was that hard to give up? And he said, well, God had blessed him with a lot of skills athletically. Mm. Good enough football player to 
may get a college scholarship and you get a good education. He was a good enough baseball player to play professionally in the Negro Leagues. And he recognized the importance that sports had played in his life. And he felt it was his responsibility to give back. The best way for him to do that was working with young people and no better place than the YMCA. Wow. Talk about a plot twist. I could not help but wonder, did his children know about this? When Ravel relayed this history, I'd already talked to Richardson's kids for hours. I had also listened to their whole videotaped interview with the man himself, and this was never mentioned. Did they know that at one point their dad had had an opportunity to leave his job working with kids at the Y to play in Major League Baseball for the Pittsburgh Pirates? And he had said no? I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado In-Depth. Back after a break. Before the break, I noted that Dr. Leighton Ravel, who founded and directs the Center for Negro League Baseball Research, revealed to me in an interview that Richardson had turned down an opportunity to join the MLB playing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Dr. Ravel says in his in-person interview with Richardson, he seemed adamant about remaining in Denver to continue his work mentoring and coaching young people at the YMCA, one of the few rec centers at the time that served the Black community. From his perspective, he had already reached the point where he wanted to be in his career, and that was working with young children. Why give up something that you enjoy doing And he loved the Denver area. Why give up something uh, for what may or may not happen in the future? But did his adult children, virtually all of whom still live in Metro Denver, know this? There was only one way to find out. Ask them. So I got together with Marcus and Terry at Terry's home in Aurora. Dr. Ravel tells us that once he got to Colorado, he was actually offered an opportunity to play for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I didn't know that. Did you know that? Didn't know that one. Terry's face is priceless. Her her mouth is wide open, like eyes wide open. But you know what? I'm I'm, uh, appearing surprised. Talking to him, uh, he talked a lot about a lot of different things. I was so happy I was retired and able to visit him when he was in the care center because he talked about a lot, but he was saying he wished he had stuck with the baseball, but he said it was hard. And if you think about it, there were six of us. My mom had six children by the age of 30. When I was talking with him, he said, all I wanted when I was growing up was someone to throw a ball with me. And I never had that. So it doesn't surprise me that here he had kids. He would want to spend time with them. And he probably knew based on the life he had had before that he wouldn't be able to spend that much time if he's a professional baseball player in Pittsburgh. But that is surprising. He never mentioned that. According to Dr. Ravel, he felt like he had his dream job and he was having impact. And why give that up for a chance at Major League Baseball? My dad was kind of under the radar as far as what he did for the community. He helped a lot of people. And I think that was deep within him. 
because he part of it was that he didn't really feel like he always got what he needed growing up. So it was so important for him to give back. Um, maybe if it had been San Francisco, maybe he would have gone. <laughs> but Pittsburgh, I don't know. <laughs> Marcus, what but, are your thoughts it, on it, it? It validated for me how good he really was and that, you know, this picture explained that he was serious about it. And you're holding uh, up his picture. I'm holding up his picture, picture of uh, when he took his picture of him in his Birmingham Black Baron uniform at Martin Stadium in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And he was 19 on that picture. And he was 19, and it validated how good he was. It also validated a few other things, too. That's where we got our talent from, him. <laughs> now, I'm torn because me, I wish he would have went and did the pro baseball thing. You know, because that, that's really exciting, too, I think. But like Terry said, you know, he wanted the best for his kids, and he chose that to be the best. For his kids and the ones he worked with at the YMCA, Richardson was known as a smart and talented leader at the Y, first at the historic Glenarm location in Denver, where he led physical education, and also later at the East Denver YMCA, where he'd gotten promoted to executive director. One of his young protégés there was Terry Patton. He says one of his earliest memories is of Richardson personally walking him and the other kids over to a nearby basketball court to play because theirs did not have a basketball court at the time. Patton is now a personal trainer in Arizona. He credits his career in athletics to his time at the Y. He says the stories Richardson told about the Negro Leagues also gave him and the other kids an appreciation for baseball. And that was huge for us because baseball really wasn't prevalent in our neighborhood, so to speak. A little bit further away, if you will, up into the Park Hill area, you could play baseball. But the only access that we had to baseball or professional baseball was listening to stories about Mr. Richardson because we didn't have a major league team at that time in Denver. We just had the Denver Bears. And so baseball wasn't huge. He remembers Richardson as loving and approachable, but says he did not take any mess. No nonsense. No nonsense. You eventually worked there. Yes, I did. And so that probably started when I was in probably eighth grade or thereabout. And so there was a process. We had a summer camp there, and the the goal was to make it to be able to be a camp counselor. But Mr. Richardson had the process set up. So the first thing you're going to do is sweep and clean Mm. and do the maintenance side of it. And I mean, when I say be meticulous with it, he Mm. was serious, which is why we got fired every Wednesday. (laughs) Because you didn't, you did not clean to his standards. uh, he, he, (laughs) He would come behind us. Who did this? Nobody would say anything. Everybody's fired. I'll see y all in the morning. Okay. Patton says he also greatly admired how Richardson always went to bat, advocating for the young people he was charged with leading, which sometimes meant literally helping get them bats and other equipment they needed to be competitive. He made us feel as though we were equal because most of the time we didn't necessarily have the best uniforms or any uniforms. Well, he made sure that we had uniforms, the whole team. As a matter of fact, all the teams had uniforms. I think he got with the Police Athletic League 
he was able to involve them and they provided uniforms for us. So whenever we went to tournaments, we had warm up shirts and jerseys and shorts just like everybody else did. And that was huge for some young black kids in 1973 and 74. What did you call, what, how did you refer to Mr. Richardson? Like, how do you refer to him when you talk to him? Dad. Dad. So you would just walk up and be like, Dad, you know, whatever you yep. wanted to say. Dad, Pops. I mean, I couldn't call him Mr. Richardson because he just meant more than that to me. Under his leadership, Richardson's children tell me that the black kids who grew up there learned to swim in an Olympic-sized pool and trained and played in a brand-new gymnasium, which Richardson had lobbied and fought for. And for many years, he coached a Little League football team. Later in life, he was named Man of the Year for his work in the community. Mentee Terry Patton says his impact was so much bigger than sports. He was a family man and owned a home. A lot of us that grew up in Northeast Denver during those times, and and I'm talking about 1970 through 84, 85, a lot of us come from single-parent homes. So here's a man and his wife and his children, and they're all good people, and we should all endeavor to have that. That's that's the way you do it, the way that Mr. Richardson is doing it. And he instilled that in us. He made so many things possible. He made it so that we did not have to be in those streets. He kept us employed to keep us out of trouble. That's what he did. He was a provider of hope. Dr. Ravel says remaining in Denver and being able to interact with his own children each day and making a difference in the lives of the other kids growing up at the East Denver Y all reinforced for Richardson that he'd made the right choice. He ended up just where he wanted to be. And, you know, you could look at the look on his face when he was telling you the story about being able to give back to the kids, being able to work with the youth of today uh, and not just teaching them sports, but teaching them how to present themselves to be the best possible person that they could be. Bill Richardson officially retired in 1993 after 34 years with the YMCA. He had trained with Toastmasters early in his career and had earned a reputation as a dynamic public speaker who led many fundraising efforts for the East Denver Y. In retirement, Richardson took on a third act, working 15 years for the J.C. Penney store inside the Town Center Mall in Aurora. His children tell me about four years ago, about 2019, Richardson started getting some compensation for his years playing in the Negro Baseball League an effort led in part by Larry Lester, co-founder of the Negro League Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Major League Baseball wanted to sell memorabilia, make caps and jerseys and T-shirts showcasing Negro League teams like the Black Barons, the Detroit Stars, the Monarchs, Homestead Grays, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially monetize this history of the Negro Baseball League. Right. The sale of Clothing apparel is a big money maker. 
Absolutely. I always remember Spike Lee being one of the first people I remember wearing the gear all the time. Yeah. Big, big, big money. Lester says he flew to New York to meet with lawyers from MLB. He told them, you didn't allow these Negro League players a spot in the majors, and now you want to capitalize on their accomplishments? He told them, that's not okay. Give them their due. I have written two articles, one to the Washington Post and the other one to the New York New York Times on how you're capitalizing on this new awareness of black baseball players, but you're not compensating them. Mm. And so they left the room and came back and said, we're going to have a pro bono program. All the monies that we make from this program for the next five years, we will send a check to a list of players that you provide. So I provided a list of 200 ball players. And they, Major League Baseball, would issue them a check every quarter from the sale of Negro League memorabilia. So I said, well, if I can get that done, maybe I can get a retroactive pension. And they said, no, we're not doing that. They never played in the white majors. I said, but you prevented that. You prevented them from playing in the white majors. So you need to compensate them just like you would do if they were allowed. They are a product of your racist policies. And so I got a pension for $10,000 for each living ball player for the rest of their life if they played at least four years in the Negro Leagues. William Richardson was one of the players who received those checks. Other aspects of Richardson's legacy have not fared as well. The East Denver YMCA closed in 2004. Its closure is still a sore spot for many who grew up there, including Coach Terry Patton and Richardson's children. Richardson and Loretta divorced in 1991. He later remarried. He died on July 13, 2022, at the age of 87. A small private funeral was held a few weeks later. Afterwards, his children and grandchildren still yearned for something more a lasting tribute. Let's bow our heads, except for me, because I need to look at my shoes. Let's bow our heads and open our hearts. On November 23rd, 2022, just before Thanksgiving, they gathered at Fairmount Cemetery in Denver for a memorial on what would have been Richardson's 88th birthday. His daughter, Terry, opened. There's a time for everything. In the end, we all have an appointed time to leave this earth and join our Heavenly Father. We thank God, our Father, who are in heaven, for allowing us to enjoy our dad for 87 years on this earth. We have some tears, but no fears that he is not in a better place. Richardson died on his son Marcus's birthday, which was especially emotional for him. At the ceremony, Marcus talked about lessons he learned from his dad. One thing that he taught me was always be on time. Not only did he teach me that, but he made an example of how that should be done. Because <laughs> I was a hard head, probably the hardest head out of all six Richardson's son Stanley shared painful reflections too. 
Yeah, there's so, so many memories that uh, I can speak about, but I, I really want to touch on um, the last memory that I have of, of my father. Um, the night before I, I saw him for the last time, I dreamed about me holding his hand and telling him it's okay to go. And as I was leaving, I heard him call my name. He called my name and I didn't go back. I didn't go back to tell him it's okay to go. So I apologized to you, Dad, because I didn't execute when I needed to, because you needed that. So uh, everybody in this room, I want you to know life is short. And opportunities are few and far between. When you have an opportunity to do something positive and productive, we need to do it. We need to do it because you never know you may not get that opportunity again. Richardson's youngest, Susan, spoke about how her dad shaped her career. I came home my freshman year and he sat me down. He was like, you know, you really need to get into teaching. You're really good with kids. You really have a special something about you that really resonates with young people, so you should do it. So that next semester, I, you know, I follow wisdom because I don't like going down a dead end. So I changed my degree 33 years later. Here I am still loving what I do, thanks to Dad. By the time of this memorial, they'd had some time to heal. So Terry shared some funny memories of her dad. At the ceremony, his children and grandchildren, even some of his great-grandchildren, released 88 purple balloons. At one point, they danced down the cemetery's walkway in pairs as they each placed colorful flowers, a mix of purple irises, fuchsia carnations, and burnt orange Gerber daisies atop a bench engraved with his name, William Edgar Richardson, alongside his birth and death dates. Terry told me later that after weighing their options for the memorial, a bench just felt right. We can go visit it anytime. It's in a great location. To me, it just really honored him to have even more than a headstone, something about a bench, and you think a baseball player in a bench. His children say they find a sense of peace, knowing that others who visit there, also grappling with the loss of a loved one, may find some comfort, solace even, while sitting on that bench. And they will know that William Edgar Richardson had died, but also that he had lived. Reporter Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. William Richardson's second wife, Dorothy, still lives in Metro Denver. Five of the six children he shares with his former wife, Loretta, also live in the area. To check out that amazing black and white photo Chandra mentioned of Richardson pitching in his crisp Negro League uniform, click on the Colorado In-Depth page at CPR.org. 
This story was reported and written by Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's edited by me, Rachel Estabrook. Pedro Lombrano mixed, scored, and sound designed the piece. Our executive producers are Kevin Dale and Brad Turner. Thanks also to Carl Bielek. For more Colorado In-Depth, follow the show in your podcast feed. This is CPR News.